Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 209, Revisiting Vladimir the Great, Part 2. Last time, we replayed episode number two and added new information about Vladimir the Great's early life. Today, we continue his saga with more material I previously didn't have. Before we get going, I'd like to plug uh, my Patreon version of the Russian Rulers History Podcast. We've got over 25 episodes available with topics ranging from the time before the Rus to a series on Joseph Stalin's enablers to the present series about the most tumultuous year in Russian history, 1917. Join us at www.patreon.com backslash Russian Rulers for as little as $3 a month. Try it for a month, and if you're unhappy with it, you can cancel it any time. Supporting the podcast at Patreon, where you get two episodes at a minimum per month, you're going to get more episodes here for free. Would be happy to have you share in my love for Russian history at Patreon. So, Vladimir is now 11 years old and has been named the Grand Prince of Novgorod by his father Sviatoslav. Novgorod, translated as New Town, also known as Holmgart or Hilltown by the Vikings, was smaller than Kiev, yet an economic powerhouse. Its government was controlled by the Vetch, a body where all citizens could attend meetings, but only the heads of the families could vote. All decisions that were made at the Vetch meeting had to be decided with a unanimous vote. This made governing the city a difficult job, to say the least. Violent clashes within the meetings could lead to bloodshed or even death. This is why Vladimir was sent to serve as the prince instead of his older brothers. Joining him in Novgorod was his uncle, Dobrinaya. He would advise his young charge very well. Novgorod was a town that was built on commerce. It was divided into five autonomous communes called Konets. There were the Slovinsky, Plotninsky, Zagrodsky, Goncharsky, and then Nerevitsky. Each had a specific trade associated with their communes, such as carpenters or potters. They also had a societal hierarchy where the boyar stood on top. They were followed by wealthy businessmen, then merchants, and lastly, younger or black people who were neither black nor usually young. There were slaves in the city, but they had no standing whatsoever. When Vladimir was 12, news came to him that his father, Sviatoslav, died, killed by their arch enemies, the Pechenegs. He would remember this, burn it into his heart, and seek revenge when given a chance. Vladimir was also made aware that his father was put into the situation that caused his death by the Byzantines, who played the game of putting potential enemies of theirs against one another. At the age of 16, Vladimir would marry his first of many wives, Olava. Polygamy was commonplace within Viking tradition, so his subsequent taking of many more wives was considered normal, especially with people of power like Vladimir. He would rule in Novgorod for seven years. It was a quiet time, and the people appreciated his work there. Vladimir then got news that there was a civil war going on between his two older brothers, Oleg and Yaropolk. In the ensuing war, Oleg was killed, and Yaropolk took sole control of Kiev. By his side was the man responsible for the death of Oleg, a Viking called Svinald. 
Vladimir was now at a crossroads. Should he attack his older brother, using the people of Novgorod as his army? The problem was they were not trained warriors, and if he used them, he would likely face the same fate as Oleg. Should he prepare a defense in the case Yaropolk decided to make his way to Novgorod? Or if they were besieged, would they turn on their prince to save their own lives? The third option, the one Vladimir took, was to abandon Novgorod. Where he went for the next two years is a mystery, although when he returned, it was with an entourage of Varangian allies. The troops he returned with were professional soldiers. Vladimir had no money to pay them. Their service would be repaid in plunder once they successfully overthrew Yaropolk. The immediate problem was how to feed the men in his growing army. There's some evidence that he resorted to plundering the coastline of Europe. This is where Vladimir may have gained military skills he would come to use in the coming years. Gathering a few thousand out-of-work Vikings, they set sail for Novgorod. If you can imagine, think of the terror that the city's people must have felt when they saw the sails and the countless boats in the fleet. Imagine, too, how relieved they were when they found out it was Vladimir, the beloved prince who led the flotilla. Vladimir was said to have entered the city peacefully with a lieutenant that Yaropolk sent to, his, to rule in his place, the only one who was fearful for his life. Vladimir was thought to have told the man to return to Kiev and tell his brother Yaropolk to prepare to meet him in battle to control the land of the Rus. Vladimir was about 20 years of age. Now we get into some serious gossip, you might say. On the one hand, we have good old Vlad. On the other, we have Rogvolod, Prince of Polotsk, and his supposedly beautiful daughter, Rogned. Vladimir thought she would make a fine new wife, better though that she was allegedly engaged to his older brother, Yaropolk. Nothing better than to snub the nose of the man you're about to go to war with. Off went Uncle Dobrynya to make the offer to Rogvolod. Well, things didn't go as planned. Rogvolod rejected the offer, but in deference to Dobrynaya, he asked Rogned if she would be interested in marrying Vladimir. There was a custom that the new wife would take the shoes off of her husband on the day of the wedding. It is said that Rogned told Dobrynaya, quote, Tell Vladimir that I will not draw the boots of the slave's son. She is reported to have told her father that if it were Yaropolk, that would be another matter. Since Vladimir's mother, Malusha, was Dobrynaya's sister, you might guess he was a little bit angry at the insult. Off to Vladimir he went, relayed the message, and assembled an army to gain retribution. Wanting to make sure he was victorious, Vladimir recruited Novgorodian volunteers and members of the Chud and Krivichian tribes. They attacked Rogvolod's troops and defeated them in a rout. Rogvolod and his two sons were killed, and Vladimir took Rogned to be another of his wives, although she would have a very high standing. Now was the time to set their sights on the biggest prize, Kiev and Yaropolk. It was thought there was an insider on Yaropolk's team, a man named Blud. There was speculation that he was a friend of Dobrynaya's, but we have no definitive evidence. Whatever the truth is, Blud told Yaropolk that he should not be worried about Vladimir and his army. Yaropolk was not very well respected by the people of Kiev, as he was flirting with Christianity, which was considered at the time a weak man's religion. 
Blood convinced Yaropolk that there were traitors amongst them and that they would open the city to Vladimir. Instead of staying and fighting, Yaropolk decided to flee. On July 11th, 978, at the age of 20, Vladimir strode in on his horse into Kiev to take command of the great city and the surrounding area. Yaropolk had escaped to the walled city of Rodnaya, about 100 kilometers southeast of Kiev. Instead of trying to smash his way in, Vladimir decided to stage a siege. Yaropolk was in trouble as he had not thought to stock up on supplies. Again, taking Blood's advice and trusting his brother would do the right thing, Yaropolk decided to surrender and be at the mercy of his kid brother. He was forced to ride all the way back to Kiev where Vladimir had him murdered. What became of Blood, who tried to play the game on both sides, is unknown. What we do know is that his family, the Bludovs, would become a well-known noble family. Now, Vladimir would be faced with a significant problem. He had to pay the Varangian mercenaries. They wanted a large sum, uh, two grivnas per citizen of Kiev, which was an enormous sum. Seeing that really didn't do much of anything, uh, Vladimir decided to delay the ta- to lay paying him because they really didn't do very much. By the time a new date had come for a payment, the Varangians had noticed that the army of the Rus was quite a bit larger in number than they were, so they decided to wait for another offer. Vladimir decided to point their frustration south toward Constantinople, telling them that it were unbelievable and easy to attain riches on the way there. Cunningly, he also sent a letter to Constantinople warning them of a coming horde of Varangians. Some say this is about when the Byzantine emperors decided that, instead of fighting against these imposing warriors, they could use them as their own personal guard. This is about the time we begin to see the emergence of the Varangian guards. From here, we see Vladimir begin to consolidate his power. He also began to start his search for a religion for himself and his people to follow. Now, of course, he could have just retained the local gods, which would have been the easy way. Instead, as I recounted in episode 2, he decided to hear out the emissaries of the known world's religions. We know the conclusion. He chose the Orthodox faith. Vladimir's rule, and one of the reasons he got the name The Great, is partly due to his economic policies. The people of Kiev were excellent metallurgists. They had access to high-quality iron as well as copper. Because of their being on a central trading route, they also had access to silver and gold. While their society was a bit backward, their talents at creating tools and jewelry were as good as any in Europe at the time. Their trading ability, using an extensive network of water and land routes, made Kiev under Vladimir the Great an economic powerhouse. One of the most valuable commodities with which the land of the Rus provided that most of the wealthy people of Europe wanted were furs. The forests were teeming with all sorts of animals with these valuable furs. As Vladimir Volkov puts it in his biography of his namesake, Vladimir the Russian Viking, quote, there were pelts of weasels, foxes, lynx, sables, Siberian squirrels, ermines, martens, beavers, colored hares, and very special black foxes, which came from Bulgar, and for which Arabs would pay a hundred dinars apiece to make coats and caps for their old men since they retained heat better than any other kind of fur. Volkov goes 
on further to explain other parts of the economy, especially one that would be an abomination in today's world. Quote, there was yet another item that the Russians would gladly supply to the East and West. In fact, it can be said they held a sort of monopoly in it at the time. Slaves. These slaves were mainly prisoners of war, and in times of conflict, when the supply was abundant, you could find one for as little as two nogatas. At other times, you could sell a pretty wench for 150 dinars. But if you wanted a genuinely talented slave, a musician, for instance, or a craftsman, you had to be prepared to pay nearly ten times as much. This seeming to indicate proper respect for the acquired skills, which are the basis of civilization. Trade, it must be emphasized, was very efficiently managed in Kiev. Storage services were developed, credit was in regular use, and foreign creditors took precedent in cases of bankruptcy. Such was the law which constituted a considerable encouragement for alien trade agents, Armenians, Arabs, or Greeks. There was one trading partner above all others that was crucial to the Russian economy during Vladimir's reign, and that, of course, was the city of Constantinople, and with it the whole of Byzantium. In June of every year, a flotilla of Russian boats would come to the Grand City, waiting for permission to enter and sell their goods. The Byzantines, being a cautious people, only allowed 50 men at a time to enter the city. Taxes of 10% were collected on trade, but Constantinople took care of the merchants while staying in the city. It was a literal win-win for both sides. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the slave trade was an essential component of the Kievan economy. The way to get slaves was to go to war. In 982, the first people to suffer the wrath of not paying their taxes to Kiev were the Vyachians. The following year, Yatvijinians were attacked, captives taken, and their land confiscated. It's around here that we begin to see this Russian expansionist mindset begin. One that would be halted by the Mongols in the 1200s, only to reappear when the yoke was broken around the year 1480. Another accomplishment that set Vladimir apart from his contemporaries were his building projects. He turned Kiev into a magnificent city, especially after converting himself and his people into Orthodox Christians. The churches he commissioned, one still stands today, the Cathedral of San Sophia, which was completed years after his death, were monuments to his reign. Unfortunately, as we learned in the episodes covering the Mongol invasion, much of the city was burnt to the ground, so we'll never know how grand the building projects were. All we are left with are chronicles from travelers who came through the city. Another significant improvement that Vladimir made during his reign was to create a school system to teach his mostly uneducated citizens to read, if nothing else. His son, Yaroslav, who would be known as the Wise, spoke five languages and was a voracious reader. As one chronicler wrote, quote, Books are like the rivers that water the whole earth. They are the springs of wisdom. Vladimir's foreign policy was pretty stout and progressive. He kept an excellent relationship with Byzantium as well as the Volga Bulgars, but he handled the latter with caution. Vladimir wanted to keep some distance between his people and the Bulgars because he wanted to avoid any influence that these Muslim people would have on the Rus. He did this by only having select merchants coming into contact with Bulgar traders. 
Another trait I found quite interesting while expanding my research into Vladimir was his position on the death penalty. Once he converted to orthodoxy, he was staunchly against it. This surprised the bishops of Constantinople, yet after they told him it was okay to punish those who broke the law, he could not carry out any executions during his reign. We see this position taken by several subsequent Russian rulers like Elizabeth and, to a lesser extent, Nicholas I. By the late 1880s, it was rarely used, except for treason. Here's another fact that I had not presented in my original Vladimir episode. After his wife Anna, the daughter of Byzantine Emperor Basil II, died, he remarried at the age of 55. That he married a woman 33 years his junior is not unusual for the time. What was surprising to me was who he married. Otto the Great's granddaughter. Otto was king of the Germans and head of the Holy Roman Empire and one of the most powerful men in all of Europe. On his last days alive, Vladimir's concerns turned towards who his successor would be. Boris, Gleb, and Sviatoslav, three of his sons, were the logical choices. But Sviatopolk was lurking in the background. Vladimir had him imprisoned for a while after uncovering a plan that he was going to try to overthrow Vladimir. The interesting fact that I found about Sviatopolk is who his father was. Now, it was said to be Yaropolk I, Vladimir's brother, or it could have been Vladimir himself. Whoever the real father was, Vladimir distrusted Sviatopolk. When the Grand Prince died, Sviatopolk immediately took control of Kiev and set out to rid himself of his main rivals, Boris, Gleb, and Sviatoslav. The first two were murdered by agents of Sviatopolk, and the third was dispatched sometime later. A civil war broke out, with the eventual winner being Yaroslav, who would reign from 1019 until he died in 1054. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as we repeat episode 3, adding any additional information we know about Yaroslav the Wise to the end of Kievan dominance. And don't forget, if you want more Russian history, join us at Patreon for as little as $3 a month. You get a minimum of two new episodes and access to over 25 existing shows. So until next time, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.